Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. COVID-35, the band got back together. We've been on vacations consecutively, so... Although the best part is, is I still managed to do this podcast when you were on vacation and you just couldn't do it last week when I was gone. I know, but I was in Glacier and I was attacked by a grizzly twice and I'm still here. Goodness gracious. So this is actually the COVID summary from last Tuesday, so... September 15th. Great, great talk. ICU survivorship after COVID-19 infection. And actually... Uh, um, You forgot that we talk about the colleges. My college, Gustavus Adolphus College, actually showed up. Yeah, so. they were there, but that's less <laughs> Anyway, important. no, it's not. So, Nicole, I believe it's Roder. I thought, and it was going to be Raider. You forgot Jerrica. But it was Roder. Oh, should we start with Jerrica? So Jerrica did, Jerrica, of course, Jerrica Burge from the U of M, vice chair of research, did a study, the Asprey study, which looked at aspirin use in the elderly and how COVID is affecting the elderly population. So this is an ongoing study um, in aspirin use, obviously, in the anticoagulation thing that we like to hear about and do. Aspirin a day keeps COVID away. Hold so, on. Oh, that didn't work. Never oh, mind. Our songs all got destroyed when you redid that. So anyway, so then we went to Nicole Rader. 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 Uh, and she's actually pulmonary critical care at uh, Health. M Health Fairview. M Health Fairview. M Health Fairview. And uh, she's one of the co-directors of the ICU survivorship thing. And it's a really pretty interesting deal. Um, you know, a lot has been written about what happens to the patients after they're out of the ICU. And especially these patients who've been on prolonged ventilation. Yeah, and so what's their quality of life? There's this thing called post-intensive care syndrome, and this has been actually, you know, talked about in literature in the past when you're talking about ARDS patients and all of that. But this describes newer worsening impairments in physical, cognitive, mental health that can persist months to years after lengthy ICU stays. So now they're questioning, is there actually a post-COVID syndrome? Well, is there? Well, when you look at just ARDS patients, patients even followed for years after having ARDS um, still haven't returned to baseline. So that's pretty uh, sad. It is. And when you look at the ICU survivorship in in this particular group of COVID patients, you've got 50 to 70% of them who end up kind of cognitively impaired and 60 to 80% functionally impaired. Maybe they can't do the hobbies they used to do. Maybe they don't get back to work like they used to. I must have got that at some point. Um, and the question, of course, is that... <laughs> Did you ever start yeah, working? Yeah, because I'm not working much. But, you know, and, and what percentages of these... What percentage... Man, easy for me to say. <laughs> what percentage of these patients actually have psychiatric issues that kind of follow this? And I think that's something that is being studied pretty heavily right now. So then she kind of started with some case studies. But, you know, big points out of this is, you know... We've talked about this before, is that patients who typically get ventilated for any reason, it's usually about three days on a ventilator. These patients, three weeks, over a month. And so this first patient she talks about it had been ventilated for over 30 days. 
Basically, the guy felt that obviously he couldn't remember much, um, felt like he was being tied down, felt like he was being held hostage. Um, And so there's all these kind of PTSD things that come back. Um, So the ways to kind of help this is minimizing as much sedation as possible, trying to do PT, which is hard when they're paralyzed and sedated. And then when you're paralyzed and sedated, you get steroids, you have a lot of increased risk of myopathy. So more issues with, you know, muscle stuff. The thing that they find most advantageous to helping with this post-intensive care syndrome is having a specific debrief with the patient, sitting down with them, telling them exactly what happened to them because they won't remember. And so to explain to them what happened kind of helps with some of that shell shock of, oh my gosh, why is it three months later and I don't remember a thing? Yeah. And that's that's the problem. They're all sedated and they wake up and suddenly three months of their life is gone. So yeah, really a problem. Mm-hmm. Patients typically like when providers do have their picture on their gowns. I mean, we've all seen these pictures of everybody who's taking care of COVID patients and you look like you're wearing a spacesuit. And that's got to be pretty scary to a person who's already kind of loopy from meds potentially or from being hypoxic. So having pictures on the front of gowns, um, but knowing that mental health things, anxiety, depression, PTSD, you know, right around half of patients... Um, are going to be there. And this is just ICU, and it's even worse if they have some type of ARDS or chronic, more significant lung issue. Yeah, and one of the things they looked at as well was afterwards, what are some other things that you can do that might help? And they actually talked about family support groups and different things like that, Um, and a lot of mental health referrals, because really, I think often the patients would get out of the ICU, and they were just on their own, and they went back to their primary Everybody kind of forgot what had happened to them, but it's, you know, some of these different things that they could do. And one of the interesting things that they talked about was these ICU diaries. And what they would do was keep track of all the things that happened so the patient could kind of look back uh, at, at what people had written about different things. So I thought that was really pretty cool as well. <laughs> and, you know, when family visited or uh, different things, phone calls, all kinds of stuff. I guess filling in the blanks of those three months or however long they missed. Yeah. So the second case that they talked to... Can we mention the one more thing? I'm sorry. Just one more. One more thing is that one of the things with, you know, six months to two years after surviving an ICU or ARDS, almost 50% will still be jobless that one year. I think any of us would be like, all right, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get back to work. I'm going to be good. But if you get that severely ill, it's a good year, if not more, that you could still be recovering. Yeah. I mean, just the simple thing of the muscle wasting from laying there mm-hmm. and the weakness, you're not going to snap back, especially if you're, you know, older, like you. 90, like 90. <laughs> so the second case was actually a, a lady that uh, actually presented four months after COVID and came to their clinic and she had this persistent exertional dyspnea and was terribly fatigued and Complained about brain fog, and I got to be honest, I I just don't know what that means anymore. Uh, But she was briefly admitted uh, to the general medical ward in respiratory failure and then was discharged to home. So she really wasn't in the hospital a long time, but then came came back to their clinic and just really never felt like she turned the corner. And and she's one of these people that has had this kind of persistent symptoms after COVID and and a lot of the questions are, are really interesting. You know, if they looked at the group as a whole, 10% of these patients actually have symptoms beyond three weeks. And uh, and this kind of what they call chronic COVID, where they have symptoms sometimes more than 12 weeks after the diagnosis, kind of relapsing and remitting. 
Hmm. So, and then you know, risk factors for that being older, obese, other comorbidities. Um, they don't really know what's driving this and why this is happening, but it did happen in MERS and SARS as well. Um, more common in women than men. Yeah, women. Uh, there you go. More so, common in women. It's really everything know, else but... has been about men, so I like it that the women are getting something more often because we're the ones taking the brunt of this disease. So really the bottom line is to try to stay active, try to do as much as you can, even though it's going to be a slow return to, to getting your baseline energy back, but really trying to do what you can to, to kind of, I don't know, trick the body into being more normal maybe. Yeah. A lot of the symptoms that people are reporting in this kind of chronic COVID is this chest tightness, the obviously the shortness of breath, persistent myalgias, and, and again, the brain fog. Don't know what that means. Fatigue, tingling. Uh, that that sense of smell not coming back like it should, and and of course headaches and kind of this GI upset. So a lot of things can persist. And one of the c- concerns really, what's the pathophysiology of this? What what is going on, and why are these people still having these symptoms? And one of the first questions really as well is this persistent viremia, right? Is this poor host immune response? Is this some kind of persistent inflammatory or immune response? So. I don't have the answers, so if you thought I was going to answer, I, I didn't have really a choice. I don't know the answer. Okay. But, I mean, that's the questions that people are asking. And I think that's what they're trying to, you know, really work on out. with the research, yes. So I think it's cool to have that whole COVID hospital going with this new survivorship clinic to kind of at least study this somewhat. So then they move it on to case three, a 56-year-old female, um, persistent shortness of breath, hoarseness for 12 weeks after discharge, she had been admitted to the hospital for greater than a month, 22 days of which on a vent, prone, paralyzed. Um, she couldn't even go up a flight of stairs after this, reliant on family for pretty much everything, and just felt, quote, unquote, utterly disabled. So shortness of breath greater than 12 weeks post-COVID. Is this post-COVID syndrome or something else? So there's a lot of things that can cause this that... COVID can obviously impact cardiac disease, myocarditis, pericarditis, heart attack, arrhythmias, LV dysfunction. So are these things also going on at the same time or this just happens to be a subsequent issue going on? And then there's the pulmonary, obviously, where COVID primarily hits post-ARDS fibrosis, tracheal stenosis. I mean, if you're intubated that long, you got that tube in for a long time. Um, Vocal cord dysfunction, PE, chronic thrombopulmonary hypertension. So things to think about would be, you know, certain tests like EKGs, echoes, Holter monitors, CT scan, VQ scans, PFTs, six-minute walk tests. Like, Want me to summarize? Let's the, just throw the, the kitchen sink. The summary was really, don't forget that people can have other things. So don't just assume that this is just a COVID issue. They may have another problem that could be related to COVID or not related to COVID. And I think that's, uh, we have to be careful not to put our blinders on. But at the same time, there's a lot of possible issues if you're ventilated for a long time. Yes, there is. All right. So there's this European Respiratory Society Austrian study um, who looked at 150 COVID patients at 6, 12, 24 week follow up. Um, I thought I, at first I thought that meant like a two-year follow-up. I was like, wait, 24 month? Oh no, 24 week. I'm like, how could you have a 24 month follow-up on a disease that's not a year old? Oh, that would be difficult. Anyway, what they found is that there's abnormal CT scans in over half the patients at 12 weeks, so at that three month period. Yeah, still having that ground glass look. 
Yeah, and then looking at echoes, more diastolic dysfunction at 58 weeks or 58% at six weeks. Yeah, and a lot of these patients actually, they found that 40% of the patients actually still had shortness of breath at 12 weeks. So really, you know, they've shown that in a way this is maybe normal. And for some of these patients, are you know, I think we're going to find out down the road, are they going to slowly improve? Are people going to stay at a plateau um, or is this a new chronic disease we're going to have to n- teach in medical school? Because Yeah. And one of the things that they found is that patients actually did better if they started pulmonary uh, rehab. rehab early. And and by early, they met within a week of being extubated. So that's really been the key is really getting right on there from a rehab standpoint. But can you, I mean, put yourself into a patient's shoes. You've been intubated for three weeks. You come off of the, the tube. You're like, where the heck am I? What happened to this last month of my life? And now you want me to do rehab. That's right. I'm sick of I'm sick I mean, of that. I yeah, it would be hard. I want to go home. Yeah. So So they talked about their program, how they're really wrapping uh the services around these patients. <gasps> like a medical home. Almost like a medical <laughs> home. All of the people, the therapists of different types, the physicians, primary care, all of these neuropsychologists, social workers, pulmonary critical care people, all You're these people list them all. Yeah, they're bringing them all into their little uh their little fold. Uh, for this post-COVID um, uh, program. So really very interesting and then uh, how they're running their program. adding the support groups and family support groups and yep. all those things in too. So. Yeah, and assuming that this is going to be a, you know, something that needs to go on probably for years. So they're setting it up to kind of this is provide that support. generational thing, man. Yeah. Welcome to living history. Now, she did have a lot of references, and if people wanted to see some of the references on the uh, management of this kind of post-acute issues, uh, obviously reach out to Katie Stengel at catholichealth.net and she can get you a copy of these references if you wanted them. It could work. And then we moved on to Gustavus, which Kurt's going to sing the rouser at the end. That'll be our out music today. The Gustavus Adolphus College rouser. I don't have those Python. notes, but I will just play along. Huh? So we had Barb Taylor, who is like in charge of the Gustavus COVID response coordinator, Brenda Kelly, the dean, Heather Dale, the director of health services. If y'all can't tell, I went to Gustavus. So yes, I was going to say something, but I won't. But basically, obviously, this is a small liberal arts college. Typical attendance is 2,300 undergrads with only 1,000 came back on campus this year. Mostly freshmen. Yeah, and, and support, uh, kind of support people in the upper classes. Correct. So like your RAs and stuff like that. They're looking at more students possibly coming back at the end of September once they kind of have some of the other kinks going out. But a lot of students, even the ones who are on campus, are doing a lot of online learning. Some classes, obviously, this is a lot more difficult. You can't do chemistry lab online. I mean, you can, but you're just not getting the same thing out of it. Um Typical class size was 30 students, although when I was there, it was probably like 20. Now it's, you know, they've cut them down to like 11 to really keep the distancing and the capacity numbers down, really running at that third capacity to allow for that distancing. Have not done mass testing, but they have had several cases already between staff and students. But one thing I thought was super cool is, again, I went to Gustavus, so there's even when I was there, which was not that long ago, they built a lot of new buildings since then, and they all had great ventilation systems. But there are old buildings on that campus, which are super cool. Old Main, which was the green screen for y'all that day. Yes, I'm well aware. Is like a million years old. And so they've actually brought in new HVAC systems to really bring in yeah. outside air. And actually what they've done, uh, they talked about how they normally would 
put them on a different mode overnight so that the air would circulate less. But she said they're running at 24-7 just to keep the air fresh. It's good. Gotta like that. I mean, at St. John's, where I went, the air is fresh all the time and uh, because it's farther out in the country. But I'm just thinking. I don't know if it's that much out in the country compared to Gustavus, but whatever. Um, talked about choir. They're allowed to still practice very distance. Special wearing masks. Special duckbill masks. If anyone wants the specific mask that they are using, again, email Katie Stangle at catholichealth.net. Focusing on the everything that everybody else is. The dining hall must be masked in buildings. Um, obviously difficult to meet new people. They're worried about the upperclassmen following the rules, especially if they're living off campus. Um, athletics are running differently. They have been following the NCAA guidelines. The JAMA article returned to play a little bit with the algorithms there. They do have a full health system there. One of their big points, though, was... To, to emphasize, if a student goes home because they're feeling sick, as the primary doctor at home, using their campus address or the college's address, which I think is cool, because COVID gets report based on county of residence. And so it's really hard to track a college's, you know, positive if you're listing their home county. So it's a little bit harder to track those cases and that they'd rather have these students actually stay on campus so they can quarantine where they've already been rather than sending them to a different community. Yeah. They were talking about how they had a special area where they were putting the people that were positive in one uh, building. They're just sucking them in there and just keeping them away from everywhere else. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, so that was a big thing. Um, Yeah, they're hoping to have different testing availabilities later on so they can increase the testing like everybody else is. Um, Yeah, just a lot of different things. They're they're doing more virtual tours for students thinking about going there, but they did have... um, They had a long talk and they're they're actually started doing them right away, but they're just with one family at a time and a little bit different, but they're still getting everybody there to look at the school for next year. And the one um, per Minnesota Department of Health guidelines, they said if the college reaches a level of sustained high, meaning 3% of the school population or staff population with positive, they'll have to transition to all online classes. So Yeah, and so far they've been well below that. Correct. And if there was a question asked about mental health of these students, especially freshmen already have some anxiety, some of them, and then throwing COVID on top of it, getting sick on top of that. So they've actually made a little bit more robust of a psych program to do, but you know, they're telehealth psych visits, but still really trying to. Yeah. I think that's one big thing with everything. I think I'm certainly seeing much more mental health issues and I, I, I can't. <laughs> and yourself or others. No, and others. <laughs> and, uh, and although, I mean, we all are, I think we're all stressed and uh, certainly in the clinic we're seeing it. And I can't imagine that uh, with the limitations on college students and their activities, we are just not going to see a lot of anxiety. Can you imagine going to your freshman year in college and not being able to have that experience? Uh, I cannot. It was a pretty fun year. I played a lot of chess. <laughs> so we will end it there. Anyway, our, <laughs> I don't even have words. We're sorry this one is a little bit late, but our next podcast is actually uh, got Jerrica Burge and we also have Dr. Tim Shacker on our next one. Uh, and he's doing... So a, just let your podcast roll. It'll roll right into this week. Yeah, so. we're just going to move right into that one because we're buying. So thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> Battle legs will end us, and then we'll be, back, be right back. All right, thanks.
than you've ever been And now you're even older And now you're even older And now you're even older You're older than you've ever been And now you're even older And now you're older still Time It marches on And time Is still marching on. This will soon be at an end, and now it's even sooner, and now it's even sooner, and now it's even sooner. This day will soon be at an end, and now it's even sooner, and now it's sooner still. Than you've ever been and now you're even older and now you're even older and now you're even older you're older than you've ever been and now you're even older and now you're older still <laughs> <laughs>